Well, good morning. Great to see you all here this morning. And uh, last week, uh, this that was the first Christmas that uh, Karen and I were actually away visiting family. And gosh, I think since the 1990s. Uh, that we got to go and see family. And so we want to say thank you to all of you for affording us that opportunity to go and to spend time. It was great. We thoroughly enjoyed it. But as always, it's great to be back here, too. And so we really enjoy being back uh, with you. Uh, Brittany mentioned just a moment ago about uh, prayer with the elders. And so this coming Tuesday, normally it's the first Monday of the month, but with it being a holiday and knowing that a lot of people are coming back from travel, we pushed it off till Tuesday of this month. But let me just give you sort of the big picture behind why we do this. When you go into the book of Acts, one of the things that you learn that the role of an elder is, is in addition to shepherding a flock, they're called to um, be about the ministry of the word and prayer. And so the elders have purpose. We're gathering together for prayer, and there's a consistent time where we're purposing to gather together to do this. And we don't just pray for the needs of the congregation. We pray for God to work in and through the ministry of his church. And when we do this, we want to offer the opportunity for anybody else to come alongside us and to do that. Now, we realize that with children, and we don't provide child care usually for this, it's kind of difficult for a lot of you. And as we look ahead for the coming year, we're going to be providing a few more opportunities where we will provide child care and sort of expand a little bit on this. But uh, we just wanted to let you know that that invitation is always out there because we're going to do it. We as elders, we're going to be there. And so whether there's two of you or 200 of you, uh, we're excited to have you and have you come be a part as we lift up the needs. So I'll put that out there for your consideration as 2024 unfolds for us. Now, when you came in the door, you were all given a handout, or hopefully you were. If you didn't, you can go to the app and go under the tab that says Sermon, scroll down there, and you'll see the uh, tab for notes, and you can call it up digitally there. But I did that because rather than going to a passage like we normally do, what I'm going to do is really do something a little bit broader than what a singular passage will present to us. And we're going to be looking at the future. Now, as we're starting into a new year, this is the perfect time to think about these things, isn't it? I mean, one of the things that I've discovered is that there are two types of people in this world when the new year rolls around. Those that love New Year's resolutions and those that despise them. Well, it's a great opportunity because it's a reset, right? It's kind of like playing a game of golf. You had a bad round on this hole, you got another hole coming up. And you get a new shot at changing things and turning things around. So there's a fresh start that comes with every new year. A renewal of commitment of new opportunities and new goals. And so for us, 2024, I mean, it is this blank canvas right now. All kinds of opportunities. And we're looking out, wondering, what does God have in store for us? What is God going to present to us? Now, some of you think back on 2020 and the optimism maybe that we started out there, and then you start getting PTSD when you think about the events that unfolded at that time. Uh, I mean, when I just go back in my own mind, I'm thinking about there was COVID, social distancing. Everybody became a homeschooler that year. Uh, school boards that went rogue. The whole problem with vaccinations. And uh, then it was an election year on top of that. And anybody would bring up the word, uh, letters BLM, and you had to ask, um, are we talking Black Lives Matter? Or are we talking Blue Lives Matter? And it was a matter that might leave you black and blue if you gave the wrong answer in that situation. So it was, a, it was a tumultuous time. And then we wrapped that year up, went into 2021, started out with a riot just down the street. And so we kept asking ourselves, what's going on here? Are things going to get better? 
Are we ever going to have an opportunity where a year starts out and we can look forward optimistically to things? And then you've got the economy as it cycles up and down. We see Israel as center stage once again throughout the world and in news. And uh, it's an interesting time when Bill Maher, the liberal Bill Maher, sounds very much like a conservative. And when that happens, Christians get real eschatological real quick. They start asking, oh my goodness, is the Lord coming back today? What's going on? Can I leave you with this? This is not new. You thought it was new in your time, but it is not new at all. In his excellent book, The Blazing World, author Jonathan Healy writes about England in the 1600s. And he noted this. He said, now that the word of God was available in their own language, the English fell into the temptation to read it literally. Especially important was the wider access to the books of Daniel and Revelation with their compelling and vivid foretelling of the end times. Now, why would the English be all concerned about end times? Because it was a tumultuous time for them also in the 1600s. In fact, it was a time when the printing press had been out a while and everyone had their opportunity to go and print what they wanted to, uh, the information that they wanted to disseminate. And so flyers and pamphlets became just, they, they went everywhere. And as a result, you would get stuff and you weren't really quite sure is the stuff you were reading, is this true or is this someone's opinion? Conspiracies begin to rise up and abound. So this fake news and conspiracies, folks, it is not new. It's 400 years old, at least. In fact, Healy also noted that politics was becoming increasingly partisan and increasingly bad-tempered, focusing on mockery and character assassination as much as reasoned argument. And one clergyman in one of his sermons wrote this, the last hour is now running and we are those on whom the end of the world has fallen. Well, I tell you, I was reading that book. I kept looking at the cover going, wait a minute. <laughs> what is this? Is it Nostradamus and you know, uh, prophecies? Well, but nothing new under the sun. It's all been done before. And I know we've all felt the same way. So as we're entering in now to a new year, let me start by just telling you where I am. I'm excited. I am excited. I'm very optimistic and I'm very hopeful. And it isn't because I have some inside information about specific things that will be occurring during the year. It's just that we have so much in the way of opportunities before us. And we need to see the future in that light and in that vein. The vision that we can be a disciple-making church. And when people come in here, they leave changed because they've had an encounter with Christ. Because we are walking with Christ. Amen? And when they come in, they experience that. They know that. They, they're taught that. And they can leave here strengthened. And I'm not concerned about the, all the issues that are out there. If you want to talk about LGBTQ, I'm not afraid of that. The pandemic is coming again or starting again. China, war, famine, um, or elections, which is coming this year. I'm not, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid, and neither should you be. Let me tell you, if I have a concern, let me tell you what it is. Is that the church of Jesus Christ, rather than being led by the Spirit of God, would be driven by fear. And we cannot do that. In fact, if we're going to be driven by fear, the Bible has a term for that. It's called sin. And it doesn't go well when you walk in sin. And so as a result, we are a people that are going to be following after God according to the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Why do we get afraid? I'd like to suggest this to you. 
It's because we have idols. The biggest idol of all, probably for most of us, is an idol called control. And we're under the illusion that we have it. My goodness, if I could just get financial control, if I could get political control, if we could get a moral control over this nation, if we could have a philosophical control, if we could just get the Supreme Court under control, or economic control along with gas prices, if I could just control the changes that come at me in my life, then I would be happy and I would be at peace. I looked it up. I don't see anything along those lines in this book. Nowhere is there a passage where God says, comfort, comfort my people. Proclaim to them, the reins have been handed over to you, my friends, to run the world as you deem fit, according to your standard, and to get all these knuckleheads under control out here, and thus you will now sleep better at night. I think it's in Second Hesitations. That might be the name of the book. In fact, if you've been reading the Bible through with us, then this past week, one of the verses that you came across was when God spoke specifically about why he tells us the future in prophecy. He wrote this, before these things took place, I, the Lord, proclaimed them to you, lest you should say, my idol has done them, and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. Take the word, my idol, and replace it there with my political party, my finances, my control, anything that you put your trust in. In other words, God tells us prophecies, not only to give us hope and comfort, but to remind us he is God. He is the one who has control, and you and I don't. So we're not going to fear. We need to see everything. I mean, it was fascinating. Tom just said this song about our dependence on God, and that's where we have to be. And we don't have control when we are dependent on God. God writes this also, for my own sake, he says, I will act, and my glory I will not give to another. His control and oversight, no matter how crazy the world might seem, he is running things, and we are not. And when the Bible continues to let us know about what it is that we can expect about this future that he has laid out, uh, there's really two main areas of focus that we find. It's going to be God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. That begins at the very, that Genesis, and goes all the way in through the book of Revelation. But it's also his plan for how Jesus is going to establish his kingdom and his righteousness. At the end of the day, that's what you're going to find in this book. And then how do I fit within that? In fact, did you realize that 25% of your Bible is prophecy? Some of it's already occurred, but one out of every four pages has to do with God telling his people what to expect to remind them he's sovereign, he's the one who gets the glory, and we don't have to be afraid. So today we're going to look in a pretty broad brush sweep at our future hope. Now when we do so, I'm going to give you a little reminder. I love that passage in Peter where he says, I write these things to remind you, even though you already know them. And we have to be reminded frequently. And so I told you a couple of weeks ago, it was back when we looked at uh, Israel and God's plan for Israel. How do we land at our view on end times? And I'm going to run through that again with you real quick. And I have it on that sheet of paper that, uh, or the notes that I sent to you before. But you got to remember that we don't just say, hmm, I like this view. I don't feel as comfortable with this view. Well, this view seems hard, so it must be right. No, we don't go that way. 
the way we interpret the Bible is we wind up landing where God sends us. And that has to do with, I gave you the acronym NLGHT. I made the L lowercase so it looks like the word night, so it's easy to remember, <laughs> right? Normative or normal, literal, grammatical, historical, and theological. We look at it normally because we're not going to make the Bible some sort of a magic book, right? That we read it and say, well, that says, uh, it says that, but you know, I, I think it might mean this and start to put different meanings behind it. Rather, read it like you would the newspaper. What does it say? You don't have to read stuff into it. Just read it clearly. But we also are going to read it literally. Now, yes, there are expressions. There are different types of metaphors and allegories. But what we can't do is force a sense of hyper-spirituality on a Bible text. Let it explain itself. Isn't it interesting that we just celebrated Christmas and we remember the birth of Jesus Christ? Do you realize every single prophecy concerning Jesus Christ was fulfilled literally? Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Jesus came out of Egypt. He will be born of a virgin. He was born of a virgin. Being in Bethlehem, all of those things. And Jesus interpreted the Bible this way too, you know. When he spoke about Jonah, he said Jonah was three days in the belly of a whale. He didn't say that's an expression for something. He said that's the way it happened. When he said Lot's wife turned to see Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, she was turned to a pillar of salt. But it didn't really mean she was salt. In fact, what it meant was something else. No, Jesus interpreted literally, and we need to do the same. We do so grammatically also because God communicates to us through a language, and we need to understand that language. Historically, looking at the events as they happen in the context in which they happen, so we have an understanding of what it is that God is communicating to then be able to see principles behind that. And then finally, theologically. How does what this is saying fit within the context of the situation? How does it fit within the chapter, within the book that it's written, within whether it's the Old Testament or New Testament, and how does that fit within the Bible as a whole? So there's a little bit of work that goes into this. But this is how we interpret the Bibles. And when you do this, you will land in a particular place regarding how you interpret um, prophecy. Now, when you're looking at your end times in the Scriptures, It'd be nice if you could just go to one place and the whole thing was laid out, right? But it's not. They're like apps on your phone. You know, you kind of go, wait, there's one over here and there's one over here. How do I piece this together? And again, you got to do some work. And so what we're going to do today, as I mentioned, was just a broad brush stroke of what the future holds and just kind of give you the essence and some scriptures up on the uh, screen here as opposed to going through every one of them from the pulpit. So, but I've only got about 10 minutes. We're going to call this Get the Inside Track with Jack Day, all right, covering biblical data, not so that we can project what we think, but so we can see how God is directing history and how he's bringing it to a point. Now, I've mentioned to you before, we are a people that are what's called dispensational, and it's taken from a word that has to do with regarding the grace of God and how each age is going to respond to the grace of God depending on how God's working. So that we call those eras or those ages dispensation. And I want to remind you of something. Everybody who deals with God has to deal with him according to faith. What you're going to find is what does faith require of them in each age or in each dispensation. And so we have to understand the importance of operating in those different dispensations. Some people even use the word economy. 
frankly, we can understand this. Think about how you raise your children. When you have an infant, what do you do? You basically, you feed them and you change their diaper and uh, you make sure they get plenty of sleep and you take care of them, right? And their response is to eat what you provide, fill that diaper and uh, try to go to sleep or cry, one of the two. Then things change. They get a little bit older. And now you begin to give them some instructions. And they're to respond to you differently. So when you say no, no, they're to respond to that. And then you get a little bit older. And then with a child, you start to introduce concepts and call them to certain truths, certain ways of operating until eventually you get to adolescence. And now you're allowing more freedom until finally they become an adult. And rather than being someone over them, you almost become a friend or a partner to them. Well, when God deals with his people over the generations, over the dispensations, he's going to require different things in different ways at different times. Now, how did God start? It's very interesting. When you go to Genesis 1, God only gave one command. Remember what it was? Don't eat from this tree. That's it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do it. There were no other commands. But you see, as you leave Genesis 1 and get all the way to the book of uh, Exodus with Moses and the giving of the law, you start to find that there's this act in accordance with conscience, right? You don't murder somebody else. God looks down on that. But it it came to a point in, uh, again, the book of Exodus with Moses that God said, now we're going to do something. We're going to establish a new era, and that is law. I'm sorry, that's very tiny print, but it's on your handout. We're going to look at law, and now there is a clear accountability for man, a clear requirement. And the law ultimately is going to be a picture of what God is like. So you have, and the Bible shows us this era of law all the way from Moses until Jesus' death. That's a dispensation. In fact, it's interesting, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we go there and we go, well, that's the New Testament. But for all intents and purposes, that's still under the law. Because Jesus came to fulfill the law. And as a result, he was born under the law. So the law, I almost feel like sometimes we ought to take our New Testament and take that page that says New Testament out and move it all the way about to Acts chapter 2. After Christ has been dead, raised, and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Because that's when a new age occurs. Um, And that does happen again after the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the Holy Spirit's entering into man. What about Israel? This, again, is a period where things change. We find Israel's rejection of God. They have refused him and turned from him. And so as a result, God is going to do a work through a different people. And the door has now been opened to those who were not of Israel, but who are, look around you, the Gentiles, people not from the Jewish uh, nation. And so that means that brings us up into a new dispensation, a new era called the age of the church. And this is the one where the gospel is proclaimed, the calling of people into the family of God, where God is going out, calling forth his elect and drawing them in to welcome them. And so what I've done now is not giving you the future. I brought you up to the present. Now we start to go ahead. This continues until one event happens, and that event is called the rapture. In fact, the term that we have comes from the Latin word, which means the great snatch. We see it primarily in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And the thing behind this is you don't get any sort of a preview about it. It just happens. 
it's the one item that you cannot really track or see a series of events to prepare you for the next one. It just comes on you, and it's at God's call and in God's timing. There is no prophecy that needs to still be fulfilled in order for God to do this. He can do it this afternoon, and he can do it another 400 years from now. It's entirely up to him. Now, I know some people would say, well, wait a minute. Isn't there a passage where it says the gospel has to go out into all the world before Christ returns? I think a better case can be made that that's actually speaking about another time frame. It's in the tribulation. So nothing has to happen in order for God to come right now. It was interesting to me when Israel was attacked uh, back in October. A lot of people started asking, are we in the end times? Or does that mean we're in the end times? And my answer was always the same. We've always been in the end times. <laughs> Ever since Christ died and rose again, we've been in the end times. Whatever happens to Israel doesn't affect the rapture. It's just, it's God's decision and God's timing. <laughs> now, what do we do? We live in this very interesting dichotomy because we're ready to go right now. We live as if we're, we're departing this afternoon. But what if it's another 400 years? So we're not only living to be ready to go now, we are living to enable others along the way, to invest in new generations, in other people, in other nations as a whole. And so we travel light, so to speak. We, we travel light, but that doesn't mean we just throw all caution into the wind and don't worry about tomorrow. We're going to be careful. We're going to be deliberate about it and invest our lives in that which is eternal. So in the rapture, when that happens, now something changes, and that is we're taken to be with God. The world, everyone else, they're going to remain here on the ground, here on earth. But we will meet those who have first died in Christ. They go first. I've heard it said often because they've got six feet further to go than the rest of us. They do their six feet, we capture one, and we go on together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And this is when you and I get new bodies. Things will be transformed for us. Now, once that happens, that kicks off the next dispensation. And that one is called the tribulation. In fact, you've heard the term pre-tribulation many times. It just means before the tribulation. We're defining when Christians aren't here anymore. We depart at this point. And so at the end of that tribulation then, then you're going to find the return of Jesus Christ onto the earth. And he will return with his church. We will come back with him. So in that seven-year time span, let me just blow that up and expand it a little bit. What happens to us during that seven years? We just go up and hang out and play harps on clouds? And I mean, what, what is it that God has for us? It's not that way at all. This is a time where God has purposed that you and I will be rewarded for the things that we have done. Man, isn't that an act of grace and mercy on God's part? That he empowers us to work. He empowers us to have faith and to live by faith. And then he's going to reward us according to that level of faith that we have lived out. The term's called the Bema seat. And it's where a judgment happens. But it isn't judgment for sin. Your sin got judged at the cross. Amen? So now when you go before God, that's off the table. Now it's a matter of, I want to reward you for the things that you have done for my name's sake. And I've heard some people struggle with this too because they go, you know, wait a minute. If, if God's just going to reward us for the good that we're doing, doesn't that make all of our efforts for Christ selfish? You know, it's it, it just like, oh, I'm just doing this so that I can get a better reward. 
I don't see it that way at all. Illustrate what I mean by that. Uh, back when Karen and I were dating, and she, uh, we were getting serious. And so she made sure that she walked me through a jewelry store one day. And as we got to going along, she was just saying, boy, isn't that ni- ring nice? I really like that ring. That's a good ring. And so I got the hint, you know, I'm a little bit smart. So I picked up on the hint. I wind up going back later, and I saw the price tag. Woo! That she had expensive taste. Well, you know what I did? I scrimped, and I saved. I even took out a loan. And then I continued to just not buy other things until I could get the funds to fully pay that thing back. Why did I do it? She was going to marry me no matter what. I wanted to bless her. I wanted to give her what she wanted. I wanted to watch her face light up when I gave her the ring. And that is our motive in serving Christ. We do the things that we do because we know that they will be pleasing to him. And we want him to, uh, as we receive that reward, um, it comes back to just remembering, oh, because this is, these are the things that I was able to do for you. And it's our offering unto him. So it's not a selfish thing. It's, a, it's an act that is motivated entirely by love. Now that's us in that seven years. But what about things on earth? This is where it gets really rough. Um, I'll just kind of run through some of the events. You're going to find at that point in time, a confederacy of a ten-nation power is going to arise. And you'll have this fellow called the Beast or the Antichrist. And uh, he comes into power. Now, when the Bible calls someone a beast, what, is it, what goes through your mind? When I think of a beast, I think of something that doesn't have a conscience and can just unleash. Uh, I, was, I was out riding my motorcycle one day, and I'm going through town, and I come up, and I notice these two people, and they have their dogs on chains, and one of them had a pit bull, and the pit bull was out to destroy the other person's dog. And so I drove up, but I was not going to get in the dog fight. And I'll tell you why. Because I knew it was a beast. And the beast would unleash on whoever got in that thing's path. So I'm going to help the people. But I was going to leave the dogs alone. And I'm sorry if your dog, you know, dies over here. I'm not getting in that fray. When the Bible speaks of a beast, you're seeing someone who's going to act brutally and without a conscience. Now Israel is going to make a covenant with the beast. And um, things will seem to go fairly well for them during that time period. But it's also during that time period that there's a segment of folks that are going to realize, no, that's not the coming Messiah. That's not the Christ that we're to pursue. And they become enlightened. The Bible tells us that there's 144,000 of them. And through them, a worldwide evangelism begins to happen. So again, all the Christians have gone, but now you have people, we call them tribulation saints, folks who come to faith during this period, And they then go out and share the gospel with other folks. And then throughout the world, a series of judgments begin to happen. And they are rough. And I can't help but think that this is in many ways a way of God telling Israel, you need to trust me. You can't trust in any of these other things. I'm the only thing you can trust in. From that, we'll find that a world religion will arise, a world economy will be established, a world leader will be over it all, uh, and then the beast is going to change, he's going to turn on Israel at the halfway point, and when he turns, he's going to persecute them, big time, and then he'll go to that temple that has been built, 
and he'll put himself in the seat. He's taking on the appearance of Jesus Christ. But the problem is, anybody who worships the one true God, he will put to death, and he will demand worship unto him. And again, through a series of events, this will eventually lead us to Armageddon, where there's a big battle that begins to take part, uh, begins to take effect. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the point in which Jesus Christ will return. With that, Israel's foes, which were once united, are now going to be destroyed by him. And then you'll find these Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints now being resurrected. And then there'll be a judgment on the remaining Israelites and a judgment on the remaining nations. And with that, that separating of those who would not follow after him, Jesus is going to reign physically from Jerusalem. And we call this the millennium or the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. If you've heard the term pre-millennial, the idea being that before the millennial reign of Christ, Christ has come to reign during this period. And he comes to rule and to establish his kingdom. And now from here, we're going to find a new temple. And Jesus will be present in it. And the nations will be ruled by Christ through the resurrected saints. That's right, you. You and I, to the level that God would reward us, that'll be part of your role and responsibility in reigning with him. And so we'll have a world with Jesus at the head, with the raptured and the resurrected saints, with new generations now. New generations will be born during this time period. It's kind of like, you remember when Jesus Christ came back? He came back in a physical body, and the disciples could see him, and they could touch him, and he would eat with them, but he was different. His body was different. And this is a time period where you have that same thing, where the saints who've come back are living in that same type of a body like Christ had. And then there are people on the earth that will continue to be born and follow after him. It's at this thousand years um, that Satan is bound on the front end. Now, for those being born, it doesn't mean that they don't have a sin nature anymore. It just means that the tempter isn't present to draw them into it. But that, that nature is still there. And we will find that Israel is going to be a glory to the whole earth. thousand years ends, and then God has another dispensation, another plan. Satan gets released. And once he does, he comes back. And you would think with all these people born and raised and growing and following after Christ for all these many years, that they would just say, of course we would follow him. Why would we do anything else? It'll be almost like the Garden of Eden all over again. Where, they said, where Satan comes and says, has God said? No, 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 no. God hasn't said. And they will turn and they will follow after him. There will be a worldwide turning. Ultimately, the wicked will be destroyed. Satan will be captured. He will be cast in the lake of fire. And then the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. And the wicked dead of the past will be resurrected and they will be judged. And the great white throne judgment will happen. And so this is the ultimate separation of humanity and man being separated between those who would follow Christ and those who will be eternally separated from him. And that then brings us into the last dispensation, the long one, and we call it the eternal state where we live in this new world. Sin is gone, and it's almost like we've gone back to Eden with the garden of God and his presence around us. And sin has been dealt with, and uh, sin has been removed. And folks, it's not clouds 
and harps and this weird ethereal kind of floating around of things that we have, you will have a, a, a physical body. It's a new heavens and earth. It'll be a new way of living. And we will find justice and love on full display at all times. And that, ladies and gentlemen, for those who are in Christ, that is your destiny. That's where God is taking you. And that is your part in the destiny. So, for a lot of us, we watch the news and we get all riled up and we start asking, is it now? Is it now? Is it now? Are we in the end times? Is it on us? What's the answer? It's always been on us. <laughs> yeah, it is. We don't know. We will only know when we get the big surprise. It's like the old adage, was true that you've heard, I know many times, that we're to live as if Christ died yesterday, rose today, and is coming tomorrow. And that's how we prepare ourselves. But I'll add, but he might come 400 years from now or beyond that. We don't know. We'll be ready no matter what. There's a stewardship God gives you and me during the time we live. And it's in that stewardship we want to be faithful. And the only two things that we're going to be engaging with that are eternal are the souls of men and the Word of God. And that's it. Can we enjoy some of these other things? You bet. And we will enjoy some of these other things. But we are not going to put our hope on them. So studying the end times, let me just end with this. It's a whole lot bigger than just trying to get all the events lined up right. Okay? It's understanding. God is taking history to a point. There's a destination. And so next year, for those of you that really struggle with control, you're going to realize, once again, your control is entirely an illusion. You don't have it. Only God has that. Jesus is going to keep his promise, and he's going to return, and the king will reign in his kingdom. And so, in the meantime, how you live and what you do, it matters. It matters in your generation. So let me really quickly give you four things to hang on to as you look into 2024 about knowing your destiny. Because a life that matters like this, first of all, we're going to be a people who proclaim the gospel. Um, I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago uh, when we were talking about the importance of sharing our faith. But God has called you and I to be deliberate about this, to communicate the truth as to who Christ is so that God continues to call those in during this phase of our lives, this dispensation. Y'all remember um, Saving Private Ryan? It's been out a while now. But the whole premise of the book is all these men go to rescue one guy. And several of them even give up their lives but they have the ultimate objective. We have to rescue and save this one fellow. And that's our mindset. No matter what it is that we might endure, no matter what it is that we might go through, we have a higher purpose. Honor God and reach those to get them home. Get them home to him. Second thing we need to remember, we need to be a people who represent the kingdom today. Um, Y'all remember the news a while back, there was an ambassador from another country, came over here, started driving drunk, I think did a hit and run or something like that. And that country got a black eye, so to speak, because he misrepresented them and showed a character that their country did not want him to show. And so when you and I, as we're living our lives, this is our opportunity to represent Christ and to let people get a taste of the kingdom, even though it isn't here yet, so that they can look on and they can say, I, that's something I want to be a part of. I want to know more about that. 
I want to understand more about that. Next, be presented to Jesus as his spotless bride. We want to live in such a way that when Jesus looks at us, he really can say, boy, well done. Well done. You have served me so well and so faithfully. We want to live in that kind of a way, in that manner. And finally, the call to glorify and serve him forever. Because, ladies and gentlemen, it's what we're going to do for eternity. So might as well get started today. Start doing this now. Glorify and serve him with our faithfulness, our faith, our obedience unto him. So again, with this life, can I say this? Live in the moment and enjoy it when you're able to. Enjoy its sights. Enjoy its smells. Take part in the mission of God. Be optimistic. Be hopeful. No matter what the circumstances, live fully in the moment. Just don't live for the moment. Live for the eternity you have in Christ Jesus.